Trade, a tale of Christmas spiritual pollution by Sternwriter. Part 5. Clock and Elvis. Clock and Elvis literally didn't know the meaning of Christmas, Callum said, and they're postgrads. Clock Wang and Elvis Lee were two of the sparkier students Callum and Robert had met the week before. Despite being Dutch, Vim had somehow wangled himself a gig teaching English to mature students at the Institute of Coal Mining. Being lumped together as outside country people had its benefits. For a laugh, Vim had asked if any of the new lot from Edinburgh University fancied being guest lecturers. Robert and Callum had grabbed the opportunity, as talking to Chinese students was proving to be much harder than they'd imagined. Vim had explained there was no money in it for them, but he'd promised it would be a fun and interesting experience. And so it had turned out. On the way to the coal mining institute, Vim had explained to Callum and Robert why they were finding it so hard to meet Chinese students. It's nothing to do with you, he'd said. I've had no problem making Chinese friends, even when my Chinese was as shit as yours. By now, they knew that Vim wasn't being rude, just Dutch. And anyway, they knew their Chinese had a long way to go before they could converse as fluently as Vim and his fellow Dutch postgrads could. And it was reassuring to learn that they weren't to blame for their isolation from the Chinese students. From the moment they'd been housed in the designated foreign student dorm, it had been clear that though they might share a campus with the Chinese students, in practical terms, they inhabited parallel universes. The dormitories, even their canteens, were segregated to enter the foreign student's dorm, Chinese students had to register with a hatchet-faced guard at the front desk, who seemed to see his job as that of prison guard rather than cross-cultural facilitator. Maybe it was. There was no official ban on foreigners going into Chinese dorms, but without any Chinese friends to invite you, they were effectively off-limits. Entering uninvited would have felt touristy and disrespectful, and there was zero possibility of slipping in unnoticed. Even at the Foreign Languages University, Western-looking foreigners were an exotic species. Their Japanese and South Korean doormates could get away with it if they dressed down, but big noses turned out to be a real giveaway. The students might not gather in five deep crowds, as happened if you stopped for even a minute on a busy public street, but on campus there was still no such thing as an unobtrusive Lao Wai. Some of the old hands, like Vim, had developed friendships with Chinese students who'd smuggled their foreign friends into their dorms for drinking parties. Vim had told them the dorms used by Chinese students were built to exactly the same design as the foreign ones, but instead of the single bed the Laowai had to themselves, each Chinese room contained eight bunk beds. When I first came here three years ago, it was twelve to a room, Vim had told them, before he'd sweet-talked the guard at the entrance to the Coal Mining Institute into letting his guests in. The guard looked confused and, having no reason to say no, just waved them through. Vim guided Callum and Robert through the cold, bare corridors leading to the classroom. In the Chinese dorms, no hot water ever. Intermittent cold water, he told them. Vim, who was an adventurous eater, had said he wouldn't give the food from the Chinese students' canteen to his dog. And this was one of China's top universities in the national capital. Callum and Robert looked at each other, each deciding not to ever make any further complaints, even to each other, about the cracked windows, rationed hot water, intermittent power and limited canteen menu at the foreign student's dorm.
No wonder some of the Chinese students sometimes muttered some of those less complimentary terms for foreigner, big nose and foreign devils when they passed. So you see, it's not personal, Vim had continued on the way up the staircase to the classroom where 30 coal mining engineers awaited them. You see, there's a power struggle taking place at the highest levels of Chinese government, and you're just feeling the distant ripples. This was the kind of talk that made Callum and Robert feel really naive. Deng Xiaoping and his fellow reformers had still not completely wrested control of the billion-strong nation from the remnant cultural revolution diehards, Vim had explained, and had to throw them the odd bone. That's when Vim had taught them a new phrase, Jingshan Wuran, or spiritual pollution. This, he explained, was the name of the political campaign that was code for don't trust anything foreign. That had only just started before they arrived in September. Jingshan Wuran. Spiritual pollution. Robert rolled the phrase around his mouth, as if tasting a fine wine, and tried it out. Stop whinging about the pork and cabbage on the canteen menu, you capitalist running dog, he said to Callum. You're polluting my spirit. Spare me your big nose contagion. As Vim had introduced them to the rows of Chinese coal miners, Callum and Robert suddenly realised how unusual it was, even after three months, to have this chance to practice their classroom Chinese with real Chinese people. Sure, they'd exchange words with the red-faced serving staff at the canteen, or haggle with the peasants selling vegetables by the roadside, or try to attract the attention of the shop assistants slumped on the glass counters at the number five department store. But these had been the limits of their everyday interactions with ordinary Chinese people, and now they had a name to explain why. Jingshan Wuran, spiritual pollution. That was why so few students were prepared to risk being seen talking to a foreigner in public. By now, Vim had finished his introductions and everyone was now looking expectantly at the guest lecturers. Callum and Robert launched into their halting self-introductions. Their Chinese was improving rapidly, but Callum, Robert and the other second-year classmates were still limited by their childish capacity to express themselves. They switched rapidly to English, as this was, after all, what they were supposed to be there for. Watching as Vim intervened every now and then to explain something, Callum and Robert were once again in awe of his command of the language. But they also knew that even fluent speakers like Vim faced what they called performing monkey syndrome. These educated coal engineers weren't too bad, but most Chinese were so dumbstruck at actually encountering a flesh-and-blood Lao Wai, they barely registered the noises coming from their mouths. Those that did eventually engage in conversation were usually more interested in asking questions, usually about how much things cost, than engaging in what Callum and Robert considered normal conversation. They had already endured hundreds of questionnaires about the price of everything from cabbage to university fees, and the novelty had long worn off. The class was pretty unresponsive in general, but Clock and Elvis stood out. They were engaged, funny, observant, quick to learn, and happy to raise their hands when no one else did. Which is why chatting to Clock and Elvis after the lesson was over had been such fun and so interesting. The classroom environment provided protection from accusations of spiritual pollution, but Clock and Elvis didn't seem too bothered by such things anyway. They quickly got past the performing monkey stage, and between Callum and Robert's still kindergarten Chinese and Clock and Elvis's book-learned English, they'd actually managed to have something akin to a normal conversation. Clock and Elvis had asked them about coal mining in England. Robert had attempted to relay the ongoing struggle between Mrs Thatcher and the miners, and immediately regretted it. 
As soon as he'd embarked on it, he realized he lacked almost all the necessary vocabulary. Looking up trade union in a Chinese dictionary turned out only to confuse matters further, as they had very different functions in Britain and the People's Republic of China. Callum's patient explanation of the difference between England, Scotland, and Great Britain, on the other hand, was quite fluent by now. He duly deployed it when Elvis asked him if there was any coal mining in his part of England. Callum delivered his usual meticulous delineation of the distinctions between Yingguo, England, Sugalan, Scotland, and Buliedien, Great Britain, which as usual was received with comprehensive incomprehension. At least they thought they'd managed to get to the bottom of Clock and Elvis's English names. Clock had simply looked up the English word for his Chinese name in the dictionary. He was cheerfully unconcerned at their diplomatic attempts to explain that Clock was not a common name in English. Elvis's name had been the whim of a previous foreign tutor who had assigned the entire class English names. Callum and Robert reckoned they knew who it must have been when Elvis introduced his classmates, Muddy and Blind Lemon. After these pleasantries, their conversation had gone deeply weird. As they approached the bus stop, still in lockstep, Callum and Robert tried to reconstruct the conversation and compare their understandings of what the two Chinese students had actually said. The bus stop was a red-painted pole with a few bus numbers and their destinations handwritten on a square of bare plywood. In part six, The Bus Stop, we get to the crux of the story. The series was written, narrated, and produced by Sternwriter. Audio production by Samuel Wynn. The Truth Lies in Bedtime Stories is a see-through news production. See-through news is a not-for-profit social media network with the goal of speeding up carbon drawdown by helping the inactive become active. For more, visit seethroughnews.org. Thank you for listening.